0: I'm not compromising my values just so I can get chummy with a firm.
1: You're listening to the Experience Sikhi Podcast, a deeper look into the sick identity. We present to you open, honest, and inspiring stories. No armor, pretense, or sugarcoating.
2: Welcome to the Experience Siki podcast. I'm Gerlin Kaur.
1: And I'm Dharad Singh.
2: We begin the podcast by acknowledging that we are meeting on Aboriginal land that has been inhibited by the Indigenous peoples from the beginning. As settlers, we're grateful for the opportunity to meet here and we thank all the Indigenous people who have taken care of the land for thousands of years. In particular, we acknowledge the traditional territory of the Anishnabek and the Huron-Wendat, also some reminders, if you guys like the podcast, please remember to comment, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. You can also send us questions and feedback at podcast at com. That's podcast at com.
1: Our guest today is Avnith Gaur. Avnith Gaur Thanoa is a staff lawyer at Legal Aid Ontario, case managing big criminal cases. At LAO, Avnith Gaur has founded the Superior Court of Justice Counsel program, managed the mental health appeals and test case programs, and practiced as criminal counsel. Avneethgar has also worked as an eligibility officer at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in New Delhi, India, and as a legal intern at the Department of Foreign Affairs in Ottawa. Avneethgar also enjoys traveling and has participated in research delegations to Rwanda and Venezuela. She completed her LLB at the University of Ottawa and undergraduate studies at the University of Toronto. So here's ka ki fateh,
2: Welcome Avnitkar. Thanks for being on the podcast with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you.
1: Um, so as you start off the podcast, could you just start off by telling us a bit about yourself?
0: Sure. So I was born and raised in Toronto or the GTA. Um, during my elementary school years, uh, we lived in w- Woodbridge, we being my mom, my dad, um, and my brother, who's seven years older than me. Um, We then moved on to North York for middle school and high school where I completed the international baccalaureate program Um, and then I moved downtown Toronto to complete my undergraduate studies in criminology, political science and history at the University of Toronto. Um, From there, I actually moved to India for a bit to work at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in New Delhi. and. After that, returned to Canada to, to complete my law school, uh, my legal studies at the University of Ottawa. It was at the University of Ottawa then I, where I met my uh, now husband of six years, almost six years. Um, and then we both kind of since moved back to the GTA uh, where we currently reside. Well, we reside in Mississauga with my husband, my one and a half year old sun and we've actually got another one joining us in July of this year. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you guys. So if I run out of breath during this <laughs> podcast or if you hear me munching, it's because that's my pregger self kicking it.
2: So could you tell us a little bit about your passions and hobbies?
0: Uh yeah, so I enjoy seeking adventure and new experiences and I think because of that I absolutely love traveling. Um I find it fascinating to learn about different cultures and histories that kind of weave us together. Um, I also really love immersing myself in nature and kind of being outdoors. I, I, you know, especially during the summer months, I think it's rare that you'll find me indoors Mm -hmm. um there's just something so therapeutic i think in listening to the wind or chirping of the birds and Mm -hmm. in that same vein like i really enjoy i think um adventure activities right so zip lining parasailing trekking and if i can combine that with traveling oh we're golden and Mm -hmm. and i often tend to so that's that's great um and i also really value um family and friends so i think any time i can carve out an opportunity To get in a good laugh over good food, amongst good company, it's a good day. It's just simple pleasures, guys.
2: So let's talk about some of the experiences of you um, as a child and how that shaped the person you are today.
0: Right. So, in terms of my childhood experiences, um, I think my parents definitely being, you know, my first kind of role models receive the biggest shout out for creating, you know, a positive, steady, and I would say a safe environment during my formative years that kind of helped me grow into who I am today. Um, There's obviously many notable kind of experiences, but I would say that for starters, they always encouraged me to have a voice and to stand up for myself and what I believe in. So basically to be an unapologetic version of who I am. Um, We actually had a mantra almost (laughs) growing up at home, which was, Right? And so I I mean I I remember vividly an experience, I think I was in grade two or grade three. And uh this is when we were living in Woodbridge, and I was the only person of color um in my entire grade and possibly even entire like elementary school. Oh wow. Yeah, and I'll never forget I was on the school bus. We had arrived at school, I was getting off the bus and the kid behind me, I won't mention his name, <laughs> but he thought it would be hilarious to, like, pull my gut because I would hair, mm-hmm. wear, wear my hair in a braid at that time. And so he pulled it, like, really hard. And I remember being like, boy, you going down. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and so I crossed the road because, you know, safety first. And uh, I just turned around and booked him straight in the face. Like... <laughs> punched him dead center in the eye. And it was such a silencing moment because he was shocked. I was clearly in disbelief. Um, But it was such a like gut visceral reaction to don't you dare touch me. Mm -hmm. What you did was wrong Mm -hmm. and I will stand up for myself. And not once in that moment did I think, oh, my gosh, what are my parents going to say? Because I knew that I had done what I needed to do to stand up for myself in that situation. and alongside that so again just the elementary years because i think that was really like foundation building for me mm-hmm. gender equality was massive in our house i've got an older brother as i said who's 7 years older than me but there was never a moment you know growing up where it was like your brother could do this you can't do that and i really embodied that kind of wherever i went in my day to day life and i remember there was it was my grade 4 gym teacher <laughs> it's funny how all this stuff happens at school but um it was my grade four gym teacher, and I think she, for some reason, thought it would be a good idea to separate the girls and boys in the class. And she was like, okay, all the girls, you know, you're gonna play a game of dodgeball, and the boys are all gonna play a game of hockey, like floor hockey. So I grew up in a household where, like, Saturday night hockey was a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, we bled blue for the leaves, for the leafs um, over pizza. My brother would play, you know, street hockey. I would join him regardless of how terrible I was. And I'm sitting there going like, no, I want to play hockey. Mm-hmm. So I go up to her and I was like, so yeah, I'm going to play hockey and go get my stick now. And she's like, okay, I guess that's that. And I didn't realize the impact of that incident until about a year later. So in grade five, when we were graduating from elementary school, mm-hmm. they had put together these yearbooks for us and we're going around getting them signed and she literally signed my yearbook with the message, thank you for reminding me of gender equality. And I was just like, oh, wow. oh my gosh, yeah. like this is, that's impactful, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I truly believe that it's that same voice that I kind of was encouraged to find and cultivate in my childhood that I use today to, you know, advocate for my clients or to speak my mind and carve out my space. So that's definitely that. Um Two other things that I do want to mention, you know, experiences from my childhood. The first was, um, I think I'm forever indebted to my parents for teaching me to speak, read, and write Punjabi. Um, I think at the time, you know, people think, oh my gosh, it's kind of uncool. Why are we going to speak in Punjabi? But we had a strict rule at home, like, "Gare." Punjabi. Mama would be like, I don't care. You guys can speak English, French, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but I'm so grateful that they did that because it instilled such a strong sense of cultural identity mm-hmm. um in me and the confidence to connect with my grandparents, holy jeez, who shared so many rich stories of, you know, their own upbringing It helped me recognize the the significance and the beauty, you know, that learning your ancestral tongue. Brings because a lot can be lost in translation. Right. Mm-hmm. So these in, these experiences, in turn, I think, vested me with a greater understanding of my familial roots, mm-hmm. um, and it ignited in me, I think, a confidence to be proud of who I am. So mm-hmm. that was that. Um, and the last thing was definitely growing up. I think um, my parents fostered a great deal of mutual trust between us, and always kept open lines of communication. So they made it very clear to us, you know, like, don't go behind our backs doing stupid shit and secrecy um, because we are going to find out. Mm-hmm. But instead, like, talk to us, tell us. And like, no matter how controversial it is, no matter how taboo it is, so I'm talking topics of like dating and makeup or whatever it was. Um, and that was huge because they encouraged us to talk about it, come to a decision, even for small decisions at home like we're going to get a new sofa they would actually consult my brother and I and I can't tell you how empowering that was mm-hmm. to be treated like you know a whole person um, and to to be listened to mm-hmm. so I think collectively these experiences definitely kind of shaped um, what I stand for as an adult and uh, what I can conti- do when I what I hope that I can also instill in my own children so mm-hmm. yeah those are some childhood experiences mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> And uh, speaking of experiences, uh, let's say the journey into Sikhi, did that happen during your childhood? Did it happen later? How did that all kind of play out for you?
0: Right. So I didn't grow up in an Amrathari household, but I was definitely raised in a Sikh family where my parents, you know, always demonstrated great respect for our religion and put like tremendous amount of faith in Guru Sahib. Uh, So for example, we you know, learn to turn to Ardhas at a very young age, not just in t- times of uncertainty, but also, in, you know, to be grateful and to th- be thankful for whatever Guru Sahib has given us. You know, they taught us to do Baht, we would go to the Guru sab. they instilled Sikh values in us, I think even when oddly trying to embrace the Western culture in some ways. So during Christmas, for example, uh, my brother and I would get gifts, we would, and, uh, you know, so that we wouldn't feel left out when everyone kind of went back after the holidays. Um, but our gifts didn't come from Santa Claus. <laughs> our gifts, you know, we're told that, and my, our parents made it clear, these are, you know, presents, but as with everything in life, this is given to you by Guru Sabh, and everything is Guru Sabh, right? And so at the very least, I think they, they kind of equipped us with the tools to explore Sikhi mm-hmm. on our own. And so... I would say that up until university, um, our respect and love, well, my respect and love for the Sikh faith was largely Mm -hmm. parent-led. When I moved away for undergrad, as with, I think, many students when we move away for university, you know, you're trying to kind of figure out where you fit in. You're trying to carve out your identity or at least trying to better understand it. And so... That's when I started becoming more and more involved, I think, with the Sick students' Associations. We had costs back then. And I started asking a lot of questions about mm-hmm. what does it mean to be a sick? What is my identity? And I think the more questions I asked, the more I was forced to kind of find these answers. Mm-hmm. And I think in that self-driven process of research and discovery is when I truly started appreciating things like just how egalitarian Sikhism is and you know the badass role of women in our history um I actually would experience a sense of peace while doing Nam Simran or making a concerted effort to actually do Nitname, right so I think in a nutshell it's at that point that I fell in love with the religion and I think That's when it resonated with me at a personal level. And so I embraced it more profoundly. Um, And then alongside kind of these internal changes, I think I I remember like it was one day my parents came to visit me on campus and I had just kind of I was wearing a bandana on my head and I decided I was going to start covering my hair like I was going to start covering my head. Mm -hmm. Um, And then slowly and surely, I remember spending countless hours in front of the mirror with a YouTube video playing of how to tie the star. Mm -hmm. You know, like, arms so tired and then the star, like, all lopsided. But, you know, I continued to just try to teach myself, like, how do I do this? And and slowly as the journey continued, I was blessed with um Daat in 2014. Um, and I'm so grateful for how kind of the journey has continued to unfold.
1: Mm-hmm. I, f- I find that very interesting, especially the point on Das because I feel like um, uh, it's not necessarily superficial. But again, personally, I was always taught that whenever you need something, mm-hmm. you do das. Um, but I caught myself a couple of weeks ago after a get together with some of our with It I was just on the drive back home and I was just like, like Vaigu, thank you so much for the Sangha. Right. And I, I don't mm-hmm. feel like I would have had that thought if it didn't, mm-hmm. um, if I didn't get to a point where you start actually realizing that like nothing's in your hands, yeah. that everything is a I just care. But I just, I just found that very interesting yeah. and how you can instill that in children so young. Um, so switching gears a little bit. Right. Um, going into your career, yeah. uh, education, uh, training, experience. How does one become a lawyer? Um, just just take us through your professional journey a little bit.
0: Sure. So, I mean, I didn't decide to become a lawyer when I was in diapers, you know, like shorty <laughs> like, no, it, that was not my story. Um, or frankly, not even when I finished high school. In fact, um, it wasn't until I was about halfway through my undergrad that I decided to become a lawyer. I mean, sure, up until that point, um, I had developed a keen interest in international politics and minority rights. You know, during my years at undergrad, I had successfully kind of debated at Harvard University. I was one of two Canadians in a delegation from the School of America's Watch, um, who kind of sat across the table from Venezuela's then president, Hugo Chavez, discussing, you know, foreign policy, foreign, uh, foreign affairs issues. But kind of these interests and experiences, I think, could have in of themselves led me to complete a master's in foreign affairs or international politics or to become a policy advisor. But mm-hmm. my urge to want to become a lawyer stemmed from elsewhere. And as I had mentioned not too long ago, I mean, it was during my undergrad, coincidentally, that I was also, that was the that was around the time that I was also getting into Sikhi more and more. And I often, you know, would find myself writing about sick rights or, um, like the movement or just all of that, like in my essays and papers, and I was just really deeply struck by the social justice roots of our religion. Um, It became abundantly clear to me that as a Sikh, it is our duty to fight against injustice, to fight for the oppressed and the vulnerable. And that's exactly what I wanted to do as a professional. Mm -hmm. So it's this intersectionality between... Sikhi and social justice—that kind of truly sparked my interest uh, to become a lawyer, and I guess yeah—and so Sikhi kind of informed my career choice. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, acting on that passion, you know, I decided to apply for law school, Um, and then there was that whole process of you know how to apply, and (laughs) yeah. Um,
2: So along when you were going through it, so how did you decide like what school you want to go to for law? Um, and then, what's the process like of actually becoming a lawyer?
1: Or even like tips for some of us who are yeah, trying to get no, into law school. Yeah, for
0: sure. Like yeah. practical so tips. Raj here actually is pursuing law. <laughs> hey, that's awesome. All- oh my gosh, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, um, to be honest, I think uh, I, I, I didn't want to move outside of Ontario just yet. Like that's so I I only applied to Ontario law schools. But um, I guess so, with the caveat first off that some things may have changed since I I applied to law school. Oh my gosh, in 20-something, I don't even remember. I'm that old, guys. But, uh, you know, the things that you do need to submit, like obviously you can find this online too, but just in brief, and because then I'd like to expand on them a little further, um, the things that you do need to submit online when applying to a law school, at least in Ontario, um, your undergraduate transcripts, um, your personal statement, LSAT scores, for those of you who don't know what an LSAT is, it's the law school admission test, which is essentially a standardized test designed to assess your critical reading, analytical reasoning, logical reasoning, and persuasive writing skills. Um, You're also to include like letters of recommendation, kind of attesting to your community involvement or academic performance. Um, Some universities tend to view your applications more holistically than others. Um, Others may place, you know, a greater weight on, say, your GPA or your LSAT scores. As for my journey, um, so I decided to wing the LSATs the first time around. I think I was in third year of undergrad. I did horribly. (laughs) Do not recommend doing that. Um, So I wrote them a second time around with proper preparation, um, submitted my applications and was very honest about why I wanted to get into law school um, in my personal statement. And then graduated from my undergrad amongst the top 5% and then peaced out of Canada to work <laughs> at the UN uh, while I was waiting to, to hear, you know, if I got into law school. But tips and tricks, I do have, um, I would say, okay, so I'd say this, the you need to treat kind of getting into law school or any professional school for that matter, um, sort of like running a marathon versus sprinting. Um because I think various aspects can help increase your chances of getting into law school. So there's no doubt that your GPA and grades carry weight. Um, so to make it easier for yourself, like try obtaining decent grades from the very first year at university instead of scrambling in your last two years to up your GPA. Mm-hmm. And if you do have a seriously low grade or a horrible year, Ask yourself, can you explain it in a genuine manner? Like, were you going through a really challenging time in your life? Um, how did you overcome it? And you can talk about that in your personal statement. Um, as for the LSAT, prepare efficiently. Personally, I found the PowerScore Bibles, I don't even know if they still exist. Oh, they do. They do. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. So we're still in the game. <laughs> but um, I found that the PowerScore Power Score Bibles um, were really helpful in kind of equipping me with strategies to tackle the logical game section and reasoning sections, and just to help me recognize patterns. um, Make sure you do timed past exams. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the LSAT, quite frankly, is a race against the clock. And I think if most people were kind of given an unlimited amount of time, they could score pretty high. But it's all about doing it under timed conditions. And so uh, in some ways, I would say that the LSAT was a test of the stamina, right? So Mm -hmm. Um, the more you can emulate those conditions uh I think the best the better you can prepare for it um participate in extracurricular activities and become involved and I'd like to stress here like do it not just to pad your resumes <laughs> because or, or or you know or don't do it because you think it would sound attractive to the recruiters um but participate and and do it because you enjoy it because it means something to you like. I don't care, sports, drama, music, whatever it is, like, just find your ish and truly be involved, right? Mm-hmm. And because all too often I see, especially Apaneh students, they're disproportionately focused on the academic side of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And kataba, like, they're important, as I said, and grades, you know, they, they are. But so is a balanced lifestyle Yeah. Um. so that you can be a better version of yourself, right? Like, mm-hmm. nobody wants to hire someone who can only read from a book without being able to carry out a conversation, yeah. okay. right? And in some ways, I think IQ, yes, is important, but EQ or your emotional intelligence is arguably more important. Um, and Yeah, and
2: even in business schools now, yeah. to get into undergrads, it's not just getting that 80 or 90. Exactly. You have to show all the extracurricular. I think some schools require like a minimum of five to seven extracurricular, and it needs right. to be mixed between like, Club involvement or um, sports and anything beyond just academics, absolutely. Um, and they do things like video interviews to kind of see like, do you have a personality? Like, mm-hmm. what what kind of
0: person are you beyond yeah. your your marks? Beyond, beyond your marks yeah. and absolutely, like you wouldn't believe how many interviews, um, you know where they kind of opened up talking about my interest section Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like that little small text section that I think all of us kind of tack on at the Mm -hmm. end like reading hiking you know yeah no tell me more like tell me you know do you like reading classics have you hiked a particularly treacherous trail I don't Mm -hmm. know like be be specific elaborate it's a conversation starter Mm -hmm. and I think it gives a greater insight into who you are as a person right Mm -hmm. yeah um, Even in job interviews, I find that
2: sometimes, like they'll start mm-hmm. with that to yeah. kind of find out what you are as a person, um, because they can they will know like oh if you worked at here the here and here like what kind of experience you have because Absolutely. it's a, a place that other people have already worked.
1: Just at a well. bit of a sidetrack, if I can uh, just ask a question. So on a resume, would you say that should be like up there, not on like the second page bottom, but somewhere where people can see it first?
0: Um. So. I yeah so like a two-page again like uh, that's the first actually you brought that up it's a good point like don't have a five-page resume like that's no bueno (laughs) not happening right two pages at most um and and it doesn't have to be two pages I've seen stellar one-page cvs uh, you know really focus in on what your experiences are and if they're meaningful and relevant to what you're applying to right Mm -hmm. um in terms of your interest you know I think you can get I think you can play around with that. Like, I uh-huh. still prefer to kind of put it at the end, but it's not just two lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I I think uh you can re adjust like adjust it depending on where you're applying. Mm-hmm. But I would say, irrespective of where you put it, don't just make it an afterthought.
1: Yeah. You and you don't know? have it
0: like generic. Yeah. Don't please don't just say hiking and reading. Like I, I it pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> and I have been on interview like on panels uh, yeah. on the hiring committees committees and stuff, right? So, um, yeah. So that's that. And I think. Once you participate meaningfully and not just to pad your fluff your resumes, you will cultivate genuine relationships with, you know, either the professors that you're helping out with research or like mentors that you've met along the way in these ECs. um, And they will provide impactful and meaningful reference letters. Um, And that's huge because people will often ask me like, Do your, you know, who should I ask for my reference letters? And they don't necessarily have to be your profs. I mean, sure, if you've done really well and it was, say, a seminar course, you've Mm -hmm. built a strong rapport with the with the prof. Absolutely. Um, But sometimes it could be, I don't know, some that you've coached with and I think those are far more meaningful than just a snazzy name, you know, like I don't mm-hmm. care if so-and-so is the dean of whatever school giving you a reference. If they are going to give me a boilerplate reference letter, that holds very little weight mm-hmm. than someone who can meaningfully attest to who you are. Um, and finally, your personal statement: It should not be a rehash of your CV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know um, This is truly an opportunity to give real insight into who you are. Um, creatively figured, like, you know, literally everywhere. And so in any way, so, you know, your life experiences expand on them. Why do you want to attend law school and not just for the whole, I want to do good, you know, (laughs) like (laughs) like, really, why do you want to attend law school? Mm -hmm. Um, And what makes you tick? Like, have there been any pivotal moments in your life that uh, you feel have really shaped you or that um, any, any challenges that you've overcome? Uh, really that's your personal statement should be kind of uh, a little like chapter almost Mm -hmm. into who you are as a person um and actually the one thing i want to add is i know we're talking about you know tips and tricks of getting into law school i do want to stress one point um and that is i think sometimes students get a little uh you know carried away with this notion of uh Labels and titles, right? Yeah, I'm gonna be that blazing lawyer out of suits, man, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I, I think even before you start applying to professional schools, it would be awesome if you can try to shadow someone mm-hmm. who's already in that profession,
1: yeah.
0: Um, just to gain like a real understanding of what their day looks like. Mm-hmm. I think all too often, especially for the legal profession, people just think like, like, like I said, it's just gonna be a set of suits, right? You'd be surprised how much like corporate lawyers, it's a lot of paper pushing, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Or, uh, you know, the long hours or so get a real understanding of what their day looks like. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes you might find it doesn't jive with with who you are as a person. And mm-hmm. that's okay. Like, I'd rather mm-hmm. you pivot <laughs> before investing all this time, money and energy. Yeah. Um, so that's just the one thing that I would say, like, if you can, uh, try to shadow even before you apply to kind of these professional schools yeah
1: what would a, a day in the life of Avnithgarh look like uh not necessarily day-to-day you've had a lot of changes in your career um how did what your day looked like change over those over right. those
0: years yeah so I mean like as you said like a typical work day in my life has kind of changed over the course of my career as I've taken on different positions um As a litigator, I worked very long hours. Um, On court days, I would be in court early morning attending to my matters, um, whether it's speak to's, visiting clients in cells, arguing motions, running preliminary hearings, a trial. That's kind of like on court days. And then on office days when I was a litigator, I'd spend my time you know reviewing disclosure uh disclosure is like the evidence for the case um researching case law drafting facta or charter applications um interviewing the client um, but in my current role as a case manager i've got far more predictable work days where i typically get into work at around 8:30. um just you know respond to emails make any urgent phone calls review the cases that I've been assigned to manage, um, review, again, disclosure disclosure for a case, take a solid one-hour lunch <laughs> around <laughs> noon, um, call lawyers to discuss the case and the requested budgets that they're proposing, um, and then I, I set the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd prepare kind of the authorization letters, uh, maybe attend a meeting or two during the day. So it's far more of an office-oriented job now, um, which is... Uh, very conducive to kind of where I'm at in my life in terms of, you know, family and Mm -hmm. and needing that predictability in my Mm -hmm. day. Um, So markedly different than when I was a litigator.
1: And would you say you um, you preferred the the unpredictability back in the day versus now?
0: Um, I absolutely there's I have zero regrets. Like I love that I litigated and I think it makes me a better it, it better informs Um, kind of the decisions that I take now, you Mm kind of need to see the on-ground realities and those translate into the more um, management-type roles. Uh, So I don't know if I like one more than the other. I think it's just that that worked then um, and this kind of works now.
2: So while you were doing your schooling or once you were working, did you ever have any dilemmas where your sick values didn't align with what the company's values were or what your school was teaching you?
0: Mm Oh my gosh, yes. So I'll say this. I believe that kind of in staying true to myself, uh, for me, that means that I wouldn't do anything that demeans or dishonors me, which also includes my sick identity, right? And so really believing that has actually helped me, has actually helped propel me to like demand more of not only from myself, but those around me. And so I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, When law firms come to law schools, you know, to schmooze with students uh, for hiring purposes, they often hold wine and cheese events. And I remember being told to literally just swish around some wine in a cup, in a glass, even if I don't drink alcohol. I was like, yeah, no, Mm no. Because I'm not compromising my values just so I can get chummy with a firm. Mm -hmm. Um, So the flip side to that was like, I was like, no, we're going to demand better, right? Mm -hmm. So... It was such a simple solution. I mean, we just kind of then. There, I wasn't the only one. Like, there were so many of us that don't drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember we just demanded more inclusive events. You know, can you please have a non-alcoholic option? <laughs> like, yeah. can we have some orange juice? <laughs> like, I don't know, water even. And so, um, I think, you know, staying steadfast in what my values are, I was able to demand more out of out of those around me. Um, another example I would have is, for example. Uh, when you have a core understanding of kind of your identity, of who you are, it also gives you the courage to reject bad advice. And believe me, you will receive a lot of that. Um, I remember I was advised to shorten my name. So on my resumes, it, it reads Avnit Noah. I put my whole legal name on it. And shortening my name like that's called whitewashing basically your Mm -hmm. resume um you know I was uh, but and I rejected that I refused to do that because I thought you know I don't want to work at a place that wouldn't accept me as my whole self and so you know it was it was a no-brainer for me to reject that advice but the consequence of that sure was that some interviews I think kind of ended before they started um I may You know, I may have sounded like a poster face kind of South Asian woman on paper, but then meet me in person, take one look at my turban and perhaps my kirpan, and then it's like, oh my gosh, this is way too much diversity wrapped in one person. Mm -hmm. And, but that's okay, because I am okay with not bartering off my identity for a job. Um, And along with that, even small things, right? Like insist on the correct pronunciation of your name. I often say, like, if I can learn to pronounce John Smith or Jane Doe, you can learn to pronounce Avnidh Garthanoa. Like, that's, you know, it might be difficult, but it's not impossible. So just really being true to who you are, owning your identity, I think, gives you the confidence to demand these things. So, Mm -hmm. yeah.
1: Um, Following that similar train of thought, did you ever face systemic racism or discrimination, whether that be at work or even when you're applying for a job, like you mentioned, uh, you see a name, but when you see the person, it's very different. Any any instances that kind of stand out to you?
0: All right. Are we ready? There's a list. <laughs> oh, we're ready. We're ready. <laughs> and we can go on and on. Okay. So let's see. I've been, okay, I've been referred to as a lawyer with that thing on her head. On numerous occasions, I was called upon as the Punjabi interpreter in a case where I was actually there as counsel for the client, for wow. the accused. I've been called sweetie and dear, like in a really hush, patronizing tone, while my male counterparts are referred to as Mr. So-and-so. I have been purposely spoken to in slow sentences, half expecting me not to be fluent in English. (laughs) Okay. Um, I was told that I should smile less in court. (laughs) Man, like I can go on and on. I think we can spend the vast majority of today just Going through countless stories, um, where I and and you know a lot of my non like non mainstream colleagues have been taunted, belittled, and discriminated against. Um, and sometimes it's blatant. Other times it's just in the tone of one's voice, or uh, you know the use of particular words or kind of subtle gestures. So like mm-hmm. hashtag the struggle is real, guys. <laughs> but um, it's it, you know I felt as though. It's almost like my identity, my diverse identity kind of appears to be welcomed uh, insofar as it's not too different, right? Like so long as you present a watered down, assimilated version of diversity in yourself, it's beautiful and exotic Mm -hmm. and almost widely accepted. But the more you diverge from that norm, and believe me, it does not take very much, the more you kind of find yourself defending, you know, defending yourself or feeling the need to. But For me personally, I think these experiences have only made me realize just how much representation matters, Um, just how important it is that I continue to own my identity, show up, prepare to slay. And for me, I I would say preparation has almost has been a very powerful tool uh, to guard against these negative experiences. Mm -hmm. Right. I think oftentimes people consider me the underdog. um, Mm -hmm. And so I think the more you show up prepared, not only substantively, like know your shit, but at Mm -hmm. the same time, also show up prepared to not accept any bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the more you do that, the more credibility you start building. Mm, For sure. Um, You build a a reputation, basically, that precedes you. And uh, it's basically sending out a message like, sure, you can belittle me. Um, but frankly, the joke's going to be on you when my client is acquitted. So mm. that's that's drop. how I like to see it. Yeah, mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you have any advice for young
2: adults who are just starting out in this profession?
0: Uh, I'll I'll narrow it down to two. I think main points. The first, and man, I think people have heard have heard me say this so you know so much. But the first thing is your integrity is non negotiable. Uh, your integrity your reputation is your brand more than the filters you guys use on your pictures <laughs> on instagram more than the font we use on our resumes it's your reputation um it's something that you start building and i think this is a key point it's something that your reputation is something that you start building in the professional sense the moment you enter university you know you're Every interaction, action, inaction, decision, everything, it directly impacts and reflects your reputation, your identity. And so be mindful of the fact that that reputation will always precede you like a paperless business card, is how I like to think of it. Um, And I think that your integrity is also non-negotiable for a broader reason, Um, especially for us, sick sick people, right? And I think that's, whether you like it or not, you'll often find yourself being called upon as the mouthpiece for the entire sick community. Mm -hmm. And so be informed, like know our history, know your roots so that you can respond in an articulate and in an accurate manner. Um, I know for a fact that every time I raised my hand in class to make a point, or every time I stepped into court, I didn't just re- represent me as of need. Like I represent, I took it to represent the entire sick funk, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And for some it's like, oh, well that must be burdening. No, I think it's an honor. Like I, you know, you need to learn to hold your head up high because you are sick. Mm-hmm. Like that that's us, right? So that's the very first point. Your integrity, um, don't barter it, just build it, right? Um, the second one would be network. <laughs> I think, we hear this time and time again. Um, the reality is that, you know, grades and experiences are definitely important, as mm-hmm. I mentioned, but so are connections. And students from, I think, racialized or immigrant communities often don't have these connections you know to help them secure employment positions that may fall easily i think yeah. in the laps of their non-racialized friends right mm-hmm. like we may know flane the flane the chacha but it's very unlikely that that chacha is you know the managing partner at a multimillion dollar firm mm-hmm. or the recruitment officer at an organization so seek out these connections and and how do we do that like i know i think i actually at one point also kind of got tired of people telling me to network but what exactly how do yeah. you do it what does that mean yeah. So, a few kind of practical tips. Um, the first that I actually really used was go on informational interviews and if for those of you who don't know what they are, but they're basically um, how I would do it is I would look at an organization or a position that someone holds and realize, "Oh my gosh, I really like what this person is doing. I kind of want to know how they got there. Mm-hmm. you know what was their professional journey, and you shoot them an email and it's not with an angle to get a job because that's that's not you know, that's not the purpose of this. This is solely to sit down for a cup of coffee to pick their brain about how would you do it? Like, what's your story so that you can seek inspiration and perhaps you can tap into these channels as well. I'm yeah. um, sure. Like, I think the more you kind of do these informational interviews, you might actually develop genuine relationships where you mm-hmm. can get a job out of it. But the purpose is to, you know, network and see what other people's journeys are, because not every, like, you know, we all have different paths of getting to where we want to get to. Um, So informational interviews, use LinkedIn and make Mm -hmm. sure it's up to date. Uh, Keep it professional. This is not Facebook. It's not Instagram It is LinkedIn, right? And add connections that are meaningful and relevant. Um, It's not about it's not a numbers game, actually, on LinkedIn, Mm -hmm. about how many connections you have. It's about the quality of the connections, right? For sure. Um, attend conferences and panel discussions. I remember like in undergrad, especially first and second year, you're like, whatever, more people talk. I don't need to attend this, right? But no, like do it and go to these things and ask questions. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe stay afterwards and ask the the guest speakers, you know, questions that you may not be comfortable asking in front of the group. And even if, even if you don't have anything to ask at the actual event, I've done this, uh, you know, sometimes where Either something that they've said has really resonated with me, or I want to know more about it. I'll shoot them an email yeah. after the the conference or mm-hmm. this or the talk, and we get together. And I think that's another great way to just network and build your build your connections. Obviously, volunteering, and it does not have to be legal organizations. Um, you know, uh, volunteering I think can lead you to so many different types of people. Um, much like with professional memberships, get involved. So I think, uh, I think once you become a professional, sometimes we forget. It's like Be like, oh, this is you know, this is how much yeah. I've done, right? And, mm-hmm. and we kind of start creeping back a little bit, but still be involved. Like there's the CBA, the OBA, Women in Law, Lawyers Without Borders. Like there's so many organizations, um, and do leverage your social connections. So granted, we might not have you know, aunts, uncles, parents who can hook us up with these kind of gigs. But Mm -hmm. we have friends and our generation, um, it's so like it makes me so happy to see. But we're going places. Right. And so leverage those social connections. Um, And don't just try to cultivate relationships with those who are senior to you, but also your peers like you never know where your friends or someone's going to end up you know, in a position, if they're going to end up as in, a, in a position where they can vouch for your credentials and hook mm-hmm. you up, like don't burn bridges. For sure. <laughs> right? For sure. And um, seek mentors and become mentors. And I think mm-hmm. that's super important. Like when I was starting out, um, I think I I legit like creeped Balpre VG <laughs> with the WSL yeah. and Tejdeep VG in our community. And I was just like, ah. I can see you guys both went to University of Ottawa for law yeah. school, right? And uh, I think with Bulk Viji, I kind of just approached him at a WSO event and, you know, kind of shared with him that I'm really interested in going to law school, this, that, and the other thing. And you know, the next thing you know, I think I was shadowing him at a tribunal um, hearing. Mm-hmm. And that was great. Like, I got to see, you know, is is this something that I'm interested in? And I think with Dejdi Viji I was very kind of candid about can you help me out? And, uh, you know, putting this personal statement together. And so that was then, but, it, you know, we still have great relationships. Yeah. And I think it's cultivating those um genuine connections with your mentors, but then also becoming a mentor yourself. And yeah. I think that's a part of building your network. Mm-hmm. Um, Stay plugged in, right? Like at the end of the day, keep the conversations alive. It's not just a a means to an end, like yeah. well the yeah, job. Milgi, we're good. I don't. I yeah. need to stop. Like I don't. I don't mm-hmm. need to keep doing this. But that's that's what I have to say about the networking piece. Yeah,
2: and like mm-hmm. one of the one, as part of the professional um, pillar for Experience Sikki, we put together a database mm-hmm. of sick professionals, and that's one way for people that are interested in a career. You can search it by a person. You can search it by a job um, to see and reach out to these people. Um, there's a little bit of a bio about who they are and what what schooling they did where they work um and you can reach out and just ask them questions yeah, like and these are people in. that want to <laughs> want to help out and they've been where someone might be right now and in totally. terms
1: of becoming mentors if anyone does want to become a mentor they can also reach out to us and we'd love to add more on the database so we can help as uh as many people as we can
2: yeah so visit <laughs> slash professional
0: <laughs> development sh- no basically stay connected with experienceiki yeah. yeah. like that yeah it's huge
1: Um, So switching gears again a little bit, uh, the legal profession, as we know, can be very demanding. Um, And I wouldn't personally know, but that's a lot of what I hear. So how have you managed uh, your time with your family, your partner, and now your child? And how do you anticipate you're going to split it with your second child on the way?
0: Uh, Look, that's definitely, I think, a work in progress. (laughs) I mean, finding balance is key in life. And I think we're constantly shifting and reshifting, kind of our priorities to to strike that balance. Um, There's no doubt that, you know, we we lean heavily on my parents. I mean, um, to help us out in more ways than one, right? My son currently is in daycare for a portion of the day, but we also really want to cultivate that bond that he's got with my parents and, you know, his grandparents. And so uh, he's with them for the other half of the day. Um, It also you know, definitely helps that I work in the public, in the public sector, you know, that affords me, I think, with greater work-life balance. Um, So when I'm at work, it's all work. But then as soon as kind of 4.30 kicks around, I am out of there. Mm -hmm. And it's so that I can catch my go train to make it in home, make it at home in time to at least spend whatever time I can with my son. Mm -hmm. Um, and my husband tries to do the same much to that effect. Our weekends are are strictly kept for family time. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and I think it's weird, but I think in a way when you're short on time or you feel like you're limited in time, Mm -hmm. you tend to make more like the most of that time. Mm -hmm. And so I think ever since having our son, Um, we've become even more present, I think, and mindful of when we're spending time together um, and so that we're fully engaged, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But look, the reality is uh, it is more challenging for women. And, you know, even with the progresses that we have of like paternity leave and discussions on postpartum depression, like all that, um, being able to juggle like work, family, Cooking, cleaning, laundry—God forbid—some personal care and sleep. Uh, it can become very, very overwhelming. I think I was fortunate enough to be, you know, a salaried lawyer with the government, um, so that, like, I have job security, right? And I was able to kind of, after my maternity leave, fairly, fairly seamlessly, like, transition back into work. But for sole practitioners, um, especially sole sole pr- practitioners who are women. Um, you know if they decide to take 12 to 18 months off no one's raking in clients during that time mm-hmm. so they're basically closing up shop mm-hmm. and then trying to reopen it when they reenter the workforce so you know you're reinventing the wheel it is harder mm-hmm. um but i think that's something that we we keep kind of trying we 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 try to just keep learning from how we can strike that balance um even more so but it's challenging
2: yeah <laughs> So, where do you see yourself in a few years?
0: Where do I see myself? Um, wow. So, ideally, I think I'd love to be spearheading an organization or to be in a position where I can combine my love for travel, mm-hmm. absolutely love traveling, um, with my love for advocacy uh particularly for women's rights. So, mm. I don't know, the UN or whatever you all are listening mm. <laughs> shoot at your girl. Yeah, but definitely that's kind of where yeah, tiki exactly. Tiki yeah, yeah, for sure. So, I I don't know, I think ideally that's that's where I would want to see myself.
1: Um and if you could describe yourself in one sentence, what do you think it would be? Uh, uh, is.
0: I cannot describe myself in one sentence. That's my one <laughs> sentence. <laughs>
1: Impressive.
0: Impressive.
2: <laughs> So as we're wrapping up yeah. now, um, we like to do the random five. So sure. So we will ask you five questions um, to help the listeners get to know you a little bit better. Um, so the first one is, what is your favorite
0: book? Uh, I actually don't have a favorite book, um, but I definitely have favorite authors. Uh, I love reading Toni Morrison, um, Isabella Allende, Arundhati Roy. I think those are kind of my top three. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And uh, what is your favorite quote and or Bonnie Punkty?
0: again, I don't think I have a favorite Bonnie Punkty or quote because my jam changes man like depending <laughs> on my mood or the phase of life that I'm in, but um right now, I'd say is on lock mm-hmm. yeah,
2: um, and so what would you say is one of your weird quirks?
1: <laughs> okay,
0: so so. Okay, I, I like crunching leaves during the autumn months. <laughs> like, I'll, like I'll go out of my way to jump in a pile of leaves or crunch them along the sidewalk. Because uh, I don't know, there's something about that that just makes me so happy. It's
1: satisfying. So, yeah, yeah, it's
0: satisfying in a weird way. Do you also like the bubble wrap? Yes! Mm. <laughs> That's a good time kill. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes.
1: Um, If you could meet anyone in history, who do you think it would be?
0: Oh, man. I mean... Mata Gujriji, man. Like mm. <laughs> as a sick leader, daughter, mm. wife, mother, grandmother, martyr. She's like the pillar of strength, uh, just to kind of sit down and be like, yo, can you just give me some ashit mm. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, I yeah, it would be Mata Gujriji. So we had to record this for the intro and I said Mata Gujiriji. Oh really? Yeah. I swear to god I didn't hear that. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> and uh what's your biggest pet peeve?
0: um hands down lying and liars Mm. don't lie to me (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna find out the truth
1: (laughs) yeah as i'm avoiding eye contact
2: (laughs) so before we end off today is there anything you'd like to tell our listeners
0: just go get it man go Mm. get it i i don't know uh nothing else really but um you got this don't ever underestimate yourself Uh, we're sick we're meant to stand out we're meant to roar so just go do your thing thank you
2: so much for sharing your story with us today and being so open thank you for having me
1: (laughs) you've been listening to the experience Siki podcast